Mary Lansbury was 84 years old, living with her son Edgar in Windsor Township, near Diamonddale, Michigan. She was getting on in age, and not many of the neighbors had seen her as of late. Well, actually, they hadn't seen her much in years. That's why it was so strange when a neighbor encountered her walking down the dirt road with surprising agility. He stopped to speak to her and comment on how well she was moving around and ask about her health. Mary began to weep and mumbled something in regards to her son's brutal treatment and his having kept her a virtual prisoner since his wife's disappearance. The neighbor remembered how Edgar's wife, Sarah, had disappeared without a trace six years prior. You're the first person I've talked to, the old woman said, since Sarah went away. And then, the woman said something almost too unbelievable to be true. My son is afraid I'll tell what I know about him and her. Welcome to Where They Stood, a podcast about Michigan history and morbidly amazing stories buried deep and not so deep in our family trees. I'm your long story long podcast host, Holly Core and I have a confession to make about today's story. I was never going to do it. Why? Well, here are my bullet-pointed reasons. Number one, the story I'm about to tell you, well, it creeps me out, and I'm not sure why. Maybe because it's morbid, a bit gross, and local? Number two, it gets rather gross, like I said, but in just a couple places, Don't let that stop you from listening, unless you are one of my younger listeners. Hey, we're going to talk about murder today. Might want to make sure your parents are okay with it. And reason number three, and it's actually my number one reason not to tell the story. Jen Carpenter from the Violent Ends podcast covered this crazy tale in season one, episode three. And I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't do the same stories as the Scream Queen of Lansing. I cannot tell it better than Jen, so why even try? More reasons. (laughs) Because even though the story creeps me out and I don't know, I'm fascinated by it. And because I have a slightly different angle, the family trees. In studying family trees, you can really dig up some more batshit crazy stuff. Stuff even the newspapers missed. So here we go. This is the story of the Diamonddale Lonsberries. Are you ready, dear listeners? Let's go. Let us begin with Sarah Wing. She was born in 1847 in England. She and her family arrived in New York Harbor in either 1858 or 1859 when Sarah was either 11 or 12. I have a William warning for you. There are lots of them today kind of like my last episode. Sarah's father, William Wing, was a farmer and settled the family in the state of New York. Sarah was the only daughter of like seven or eight boys, two of them dying before she turned 18. Now, we will dig into this a bit later, but I couldn't find official documents stating that Sarah Wing was married twice, although newspaper articles mention a son from a previous marriage. The newspaper articles state that Sarah had a son named William Henry Warboys, 
who was a wealthy rancher from Nebraska. Well, the only William Henry Warboys I could find, and that's a pretty specific name, was Sarah's first cousin. Not her son, her first cousin. Yeah, so Sarah's mother's sister was a woman named Sarah. And perhaps our Sarah Wing was named after her Aunt Sarah. Auntie Sarah, not our Sarah Wing, but Auntie Sarah married a man named William Henry Warboys in 1860. Sarah Wing would have been 13 at the time. Auntie Sarah gave birth to her first child, a girl, in 1861, and in 1864, William Henry Warboys Jr. was born. Sarah Wing would have been 18 years old at the time of his birth. So I thought, okay. The newspaper was mistaken. William Warboys, the wealthy rancher from Nebraska, did not rush home to Michigan in 1911 to attend his mother, Sarah's funeral. We'll get to that. He rushed to Michigan in 1911 to attend his cousin, Sarah's funeral. See the difference? But then, gosh darn it, I stumbled on someone's family tree on Ancestry. On this particular family tree, Sarah Wing was married to a Gustavus Gates, and the pair had a son. And guess what that son's name was? William Henry Gates. So what the actual F is going on here? Here's my take. Sarah Wing was briefly married to Gustavus. She got pregnant, and the marriage wasn't working out. So she gave the baby up for adoption, but it was Auntie Sarah who stepped in and said, Uncle William Warboys and I will raise him as our own child. We will even name him after Uncle William. Here's the thing, though. Little William Henry knew who his birth mama was, and I have strong evidence of this, as you will see later. Short recap. Sarah Wing was born, immigrated to the United States from England, Married, had a son, divorced, gave up her child, and all of this was done before the age of 18. Wow. Now, around 19 years old, Sarah married again to William Edgar Lonsbury. This is the third, no, fourth William I've mentioned so far. (laughs) I'm so sorry about that. But we are going to do what everyone did back then anyhow. We are going to call William Edgar Lonsbury by his middle name, Edgar. Let's also chat briefly about Edgar. He was born in 1849, about two-ish years after Sarah. His parents were George and Mary Lonsbury, or Lounsbury. I've seen it written both ways, but the U fell off the name sometime at the end of the 1800s. The pronunciation could have been Lounsbury or Lonsbury or Lounsbury. I'm sorry to say, I don't know how they pronounced it. And I might use both, but I probably will just stick with Lonsbury since the U was dropped. Edgar was the oldest of three children with a younger brother and sister. He was raised in New York like his future wife, Sarah Wing. After Sarah Wing and Edgar Lonsbury got married, they moved to Michigan, first to Monroe County and then to Wacusta, which is northwest of Lansing and Clinton County. This is where their first child, a daughter named Mary, was born in 1869. The couple had more kids. Carlisle, who was called Leslie, Herman, Amy, and Sarah. Sarah only lived a few months, unfortunately. 
and then the following year their daughter Amy also died. Clarence, Andrew, William, and Jesse rounded out the kids, but Andrew died in 1888. Sarah Wing Lansbury had given birth to ten children, and... Do you think it's weird she had two sons named William? (laughs) I mean, it makes sense, I guess. The one was named after his adopted father, and the other William was named after his birth father. But still, that's weird. A little bit. Sarah had given birth, like I said, to ten children, but had to bury three of them. The heartache must have been immense. Now, if you've become distracted or tuned me out, you'll want to pay attention a bit to this next part, because this is some major foreshadowing. Sometime around 1885, the Lonsberries had the money to purchase some farmland in Windsor Township. Windsor Township is in Eaton County, and the town of Diamonddale is in both. Now, I've heard two different stories. I've heard? No, I haven't heard two different stories. I've read two different stories about this land that the Lonsberries purchased. The first story goes that Sarah's father, or just going to call him Mr. Wings so as not to confuse you, gave Sarah some money to purchase the land. He had one condition. Put the land in your name, Sarah. Or it went like this. Sarah had made the purchases when a wealthy relative out east had passed his estate on to her. Again, I think that was her father. But the second story is from the mouth of Edgar Lonsbury to a Lansing State Journal reporter, and it goes like this. Quote, He, Edgar, bought the farm in Windsor Township, the 80 acres. Later, he bought an adjoining 20 acres, 10 of which he has since deeded to his son, Herman. More on that later. Originally, Lansbury bought the 80 acres from a Lansing man on contract. A balance of $600 was paid by the father of Mrs. Lansbury, Sarah, which accounts for the fact that the deed was made out to her. Afterward, she executed a joint deed, which was the start of all their trouble. Let me sum this up for you. The land was in Sarah's name, and that royally pissed off her husband. An article in the Lansing State Journal put it like this, This balance of family control on his wife's side had been a known source of resentment on the part of Lonsbury, who had repeatedly sought her agreement to a joint deed. That she would not agree had been the cause of many quarrels between the two. End quote. This was not totally uncommon back then, to have the property in the woman's name. In fact, the Lonsberries had some neighbors named the Lennons. The husband of this family was James Lennon, born in 1841. If you are a friend of mine or a resident of Holt slash Lansing, this name might sound familiar, and for very good reason. Yeah, it's you-know-who's great-great-great-grandfather. Oh, and hey, if you are a where-they-stood expert, you have already, air quotes, met Jim. This is my friend that I talk about at the end of Season 1, Episode 2. Go check that out when you have the chance. Now, if you look at the plat map from 1885, you'll see many variations of landowners' names. Both the husband and the wife's name, or just the husband's name, or the husband's name plus wife 
They just don't mention the wife's name. And lastly, just the wife's name is sometimes listed, even if she was married and even if the husband was still alive and living there. This was the case for the Lennons. Jane Lennon is listed as the property owner, not her husband James, but I don't think it ate away at James the way it did Edgar Lonsbury. I'm going to upload this map for you on my Facebook page and someday my website. First, you'll locate Sarah E. Lonsbury's property right in the middle there. And listen, Lanstronauts, this is what Jen Carpenter calls Lancy Knights, and I'm here for all of it. If you want to get your bearings on this map, the Grand River is located just to the left. The rest of it? Well, that's on you to figure out. It will be your own little mystery to solve. Okay, so if you look at Sarah's property, you'll see a little square that indicates a house. You'll also see the railroad tracks splitting the property in half, much the way Nathan Hastings' property was split. Season 1, Episode 1 of this podcast for more information on that. Now, I have to tell you something that might give away more of this mystery location. If you look at the bottom of the map, you'll see a road with more homes on it. That road is now the freeway, I-96. But you can see how people used to just take roads straight to Diamonddale without having to cross the freeway at Kreitz Road. Anyhow, to the north of the Lonsberries are the W.D. Gardeners. As my best friend Jess would say, put a pin in that one. But several houses down, or up, I guess north from the Gardeners, are the William Lennons and Jane Lennon. So you can see women had properties in their names. But Jane Lennon's husband, James, wasn't an ass about it. And unfortunately, poor Jane died of consumption just after this map was printed. Also, the Lennon family might be one we have to revisit next season. They have some good stories. Back to the Lonsberries. They raised their children, and the children began to leave home. And actually, I accidentally found out some more interesting information. Their youngest child, a daughter named Jessie, moved out when she was really young, around 13 years old. She moved in with Edgar and Sarah's eldest child, Mary. Mary had hitched up to a man named Albert Kennedy, and they had moved to Kansas City, Missouri. In the 1900 census, Mary, Mary's husband, and Mary's two sons are all living together along with Mary's 13-year-old sister, Jessie, who is attending school according to the census. But why is she living with her older sister? Could be a number of reasons, I guess. It could be that the schools were better in Kansas City in 1900. Also, the schoolhouse in Windsor Township was kitty corner from the Lonsberries, like right across the street there. It could be because Jessie could help Mary out with her sons. But I guess it could also be that Mom and Dad, Sarah and Edgar, just weren't getting along. We're going to come back to these sisters, Mary and Jessie, so you know, put a pin in it. Around 1902 or 1903, Edgar's mother, Mary, uh, <laughs> another Mary, let's just call her Mima because I want to. Okay, so Mima was not doing so well. She was living with Edgar's younger brother, Fedro, Frank, Lonsbury, and his family in Ontario, Canada, but good old Fredro was sick of Mima. He wanted her gone. 
He wrote to his brother Edgar and said, Come get Ma, or I'm putting her in a poorhouse. So Edgar did the right thing by his poor sweet mama and moved her to Diamonddale, Windsor Township. Did his wife Sarah like this move? Apparently not. I guess not everyone has the most amazing mother-in-law like I do. Well, my husband has amazing in-laws as well, but I scored big in the mother-in-law department. She is gold. She also doesn't listen to this podcast, so I am not sucking up. She really is gold. It was also around this time that Edgar and Sarah built a two-story rock house next to the little house they had lived in for a few years. Well, the new house was either next to or right in front of the home they had raised their family in, or the new part of the home was just added on to the old part of the home, making them kind of like one home. I'm not really quite sure what the case was. But we're going to flash forward to an article written about the house in 1911. A reporter from the Lansing State Journal called the house a rather, quote, pretentious stone farmhouse with the unpainted, dismal-looking little hovel just back of it, end quote. I think the hovel is the sheep shed, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Also, I think the reason for calling it pretentious was because the house was unlike any other in the area. It wasn't made of wood boards, and it wasn't brick. It was rocks and stones, and it really stood out. 1904 was drawing to a close. Perhaps the Lonsberries hosted a Christmas dinner at their new yet unfinished, pretentious, stone home and invited their two boys, Herman and Clarence, who lived on adjoining farms nearby. Christmas turned to New Year's Eve, and New Year's Eve turned to New Year's Day, which is always a fresh start for everyone. But not this year. Not for Sarah. She had had enough. A story was written, and it looks like it was printed in a book or a magazine, but it could have just been a newspaper. It was called, quote, Michigan's Vanished Wife and Imprisoned Witness by James B. Vick. I absolutely love this article, and I'm going to quote this man a lot. Here we go. Quote, It was a blustery winter afternoon late in January when a gray-bearded man with drawn, troubled features and a voice that quavered, yes, they used the word quavered, with anxiety, entered the office of Sheriff Oliver Halliday in the Eaton County Jail at Charlotte, Michigan. It's about my wife, he confided brokenly. I'm afraid something has happened to her. She's been gone more than a week and I haven't heard a word. End quote. At the time that Edgar Lonsberry had wandered all the way to Flippin' Charlotte's police station, which would have been a trek in the horse and buggy, apparently he had a nice buggy according to the neighbors, Edgar was 56, Sarah was 57. The Lonsberrys had been married for almost 40 years. The sheriff studied Edgar and wondered if perhaps he was jumping the gun on Sarah's disappearance. Perhaps she went to visit relatives and would be home in a few days. But, quote, Lonsbury shook his head gravely, although evidently with some relief. You may be right, Sheriff, he agreed at last, but I thought I'd best see you in case you might have heard anything unusual. End quote. Unusual? Well, uh, that statement was unusual, my dude. Sheriff Halliday was also intrigued. Um, what? he said. 
That wasn't a direct quote, actually. Edgar explained, quote, Well, Sheriff, almost anything might happen, you know, to a woman traveling alone. She had a fair amount of money with her, too. End quote. So, okay, your wife of 38 years disappears, but you know she was traveling somewhere? And you know she has a fair amount of money on her? So you know some things. Now let's return to James B. Vick's story. He wrote, quote, For some reason that he could not explain to himself, Halliday suddenly sensed something about the strange business that transmitted to him a share of the doubt that his visitor had voiced. End quote. The sheriff told Mr. Lonsbury to return home and wait. But Sarah did not return. No one had heard from her either. Not the relatives in Canada she would visit. Not her rich son in Nebraska. See, that's referring to that first child Sarah had given over to her auntie. The sheriff reached out to other police stations in Michigan, inquiring about Sarah Lonsbury. And nothing. But old Sheriff Halliday wasn't done investigating this mysterious case. He dropped in on the Lonsbury farm to check on things, and Edgar told him something incredible. I'm afraid it's no use, Edgar said. Whatever has happened to her, I'm afraid we'll never see her again. End quote. Well, WTF, man, that was quite the leap. She had been gone for two weeks, but now nobody's ever going to see her again? The sheriff tried to encourage Edgar by explaining how some officers were traveling to different train depots to question people there. It was then that Edgar revealed himself a bit more. Quote, Lonsberry flushed uncomfortably and lowered his eyes. Sheriff, he said at last, there's something about all this I should have told you at the beginning. That's what makes it so hard to bear. I, you see, we had a little spat before Sarah left and she wouldn't let me take her to the train. She just packed and said she was going to her folks in Canada. By the way, her folks didn't live in Canada. I think they were dead. His brother lived in Canada, though. So, anyway. I asked her how she was going to get to Lansing, thinking she would relent at the last minute, but she said she could get somebody to drive her in. That's the last time I saw her, carrying a suitcase and walking down the road toward Diamonddale. End quote. Can you envision it? A woman dressed in her 1900s getup walking down a dirt road with a suitcase in January in Michigan with one hand in her pocket and the other one giving a peace sign? Well, don't. Don't envision that because it never forking happened. This new information cast a whole new light on the case. It had been two weeks since the first report. The sheriff was a bit pissed at Edgar, telling him, Hey, I wish you'd told me this, buddy. Now it's more of a cold case. This was not a direct quote. The LPD, Lansing Police Department, got involved at this point, and neighbors were questioned. Neighbors which probably included the Lennons. No one saw her, but neighbors said Sarah was not one to walk out on her husband, and even he agreed. She probably would not have left him for another man. Quote, the neighbors knew her well as a woman truly devoted to her home and family. End quote. The officers went down to the Lansing train depot. You know this place, Lanstronauts. This is the old depot in downtown Lansing that used to be Clara's restaurant. 
which is now a Starbucks. Anyhow, there were a lot of angles, and every angle was probed. Whoa. I hope you heard me correctly there. There were also search parties organized. One search party, upon hearing that Sarah Lonsbury left the house in the cold without one of her many outer garments, you know, in a Michigan January, decided that Sarah must have been despondent over the trouble in her home, that was a quote, and had run to the river at the back of the property, cut a hole in the ice, and drowned herself. Jesus H, man, no, absolutely freaking not. And what was Edgar doing this whole time people were searching for his wife? Getting weird. Quote, Lonsbury, upon whom the strain of uncertainty and public tongue-wagging had already left indelible marks of suffering, shrank close within his lonely farm home. Seldom were he and his aged mother seen by their closest neighbors. They only left the premises for an occasional necessary shopping visit to the nearby village of Diamonddale. End quote. Perhaps they were having a drink at Dimes, eating Main Street pizza, or having the best ice cream in the world at the village ice cream shop in downtown Diamonddale. Well, except, of course, Edgar and Meemaw didn't do any of that because those places didn't exist in that capacity quite yet. But that's how I would spend an evening in Diamonddale. Months went by and no new leads, all dead ends. It became clear that, quote, some grave misfortune had befallen her, Sarah, within a short time after she had left her husband's home. End quote. Also, her husband's home, but damn it, the property was in her name, y'all. Well, I guess not anymore because she was missing. Edgar did actually put up a $50 reward, which he advertised in the Lansing newspapers repeatedly, but nothing came of it. The part of this whole story that troubled Sheriff Halliday the most was that none of the neighbors had seen her leave. Back then, I guess, someone should have seen her walking down the road. Quote, It was as if the earth had opened and swallowed her as she left the doorstep of her home. End quote. Foreshadowing. Some time passed. Six years' time. And all was not well in the Lonsbury home. First of all, the kids of Edgar and Sarah, well, some of them were pretty troubled about this. Most of the children couldn't believe their mother had left their father after all those years of marriage, and after all they had been through with the building of a new pretentious house. To think, Ma would leave poor Pa and me Ma over a fight about the property name. All of the children sympathized with Edgar. All except one. William Lloyd who for some reason is sometimes called Floyd, but we're just going to call him Lloyd because that was his name. This is the second William that Sarah gave birth to. Lloyd just knew. He just had a suspicion that his mother would never up and leave the home the way it sounded like she did. The way his father was making it sound like she did. You know who else just knew Sarah hadn't just walked away? Her eldest child, her firstborn son, William Warboys, who had traveled to Michigan from Nebraska to speak to the sheriff's office and tried to get evidence himself. William was discouraged as he returned home out west, but what Mr. Warboys didn't know was that there was a new sheriff in town, and this new sheriff had been quietly working on the case for the last two months. William Warboys had inadvertently kick-started a new investigation. 
And I just don't know if you would do that for your first cousin who's 18 years older than you, but I think you would do that for your mama. Sheriff Robert Donovan took over as Eaton County Sheriff from Oliver Halliday. And this sheriff was pretty troubled over the disappearance of Sarah Wing Lonsbury. It was June 1911, and Sheriff Donovan had gone over the case notes of Sarah's. But why, after six freaking years, was the sheriff reviewing the case notes? The answer has less to do with the disappearance of Sarah Lonsbury, and more to do with the appearance of Mima, Mary Lonsbury, the mother of Edgar. Think way back to the opening of this episode. Do you remember how I opened the story with Mary Lansbury strolling down the road and speaking to a neighbor? She had said to the neighbor, quote, You're the first person I've talked to since Sarah went away. And then the woman had said something almost too unbelievable to be true. My son is afraid I'll tell what I know about him and her. Mr. Hart was the name of the neighbor she had spoken to. As he was taking this information in and possibly crapping his pants, her son Edgar came running up the road to catch her. He appeared extremely anxious and explained his mother was going senile, saying some bizarre things. For this reason, Edgar had had to keep a tight leash on her. The old woman had protested feebly, quote, but with a fear in her eyes that had awed the startled neighbor, the woman had submitted and turned toward home. End quote. The neighbor, Mr. Hart, was not having any of this and contacted the sheriff's department. And it wasn't just the neighbor, but several who were concerned about Mary Lonsbury's care and health. There was just too much bonkers shit happening around that rock house. So Sheriff Donovan decided to hitch up his horse and go check out what was going on over in Windsor Township. He stopped to speak to some neighbors and then knocked on the front door of the Lonsbury residence. A nervous young woman answered the door. She explained that she was the housekeeper and that Mr. Lonsbury is upstairs taking care of his mother. I'm going to read to you from the article by James B. Vick. Quote, The sheriff was at once sympathetic. Oh yes, he said, I understand the poor old lady has not been well lately. She's not worse, I hope. The answer came unexpectedly from an inner doorway where Lonsbury himself spoke. She's quite well, Sheriff. Thanks. Except, of course, that her age is bearing down pretty heavily upon her. She's 84, you know. An eager gleam crept into the man's eyes as he approached the officer at the door. But surely you didn't call merely to inquire about her health. You haven't heard anything from my wife. End quote. Blink. Blink, blink, blink. Neighbors were concerned and knew some freaky shit was going down at the house and the neighbors thought she was being mistreated. Mima herself had said that. Edgar shook his head pretending to be hurt. He made an excuse about how his mother hadn't been the same since Sarah had left and that his mother was becoming quite a problem. That was a quote. Again, the sheriff sympathized, but this guy, Sheriff Donovan, I love him. He wasn't just going to go away. He said to Edgar, quote, I see how it is, Mr. Lonsbury, but just so I can quiet down these rumors that are going around, I think it would be wise if I should see her and talk to her for a few moments. Lonsbury raised a shaking hand in a gesture of alarm. 
No, I couldn't possibly let you see her. Not now, anyway. She's so easily upset and really quite violent when she's disturbed. I've just managed to quiet her, and the presence of a stranger would only start another tantrum. End quote. Oh my Jesus, Edgar. He is definitely one of those people that can all the way off. The sheriff could see he wasn't going to get anywhere with this dude. So he left, but he took his doubts and suspicions to the town of Diamonddale where he questioned even more people. Was the aged mother's mind, he wondered vaguely, actually as warped as her son would have people believe? The Lonsbury children were all contacted by Sheriff Donovan. <laughs> don't you love this guy? I just do. I shouldn't say that because maybe there's something horrible about him I don't know, but I just love how he was like, nope, nope, nope. He trusted his instincts. After questioning the kids, two facts stood out. Number one, the property had been in the wife, Sarah's name, and purchased with money given to her or something like that. And two, this upset her husband, Edgar, to no end and was the source of most of their strife. Sheriff Donovan contacted Prosecutor Russell R. McPeak, who ended up becoming a judge in the Eaton County Circuit Court. Yep, all of it was too weird, he agreed too mystifying. Both men came to the same conclusion. Meemaw wasn't as crazy as her son was making her out to be. But how could they question her without alarming or tipping off Lonsbury that they were suspicious of him? Without actual proof, how could anything proceed? From the article, and I love this quote, We'll go out there tomorrow, McPeak decided abruptly, and call his bluff. Tell him we want to give her a sanity test, anything to talk to her. The sheriff objected. But he's afraid, or so he says, that she'll be committed to an institution. If she really is a mental case, he'll object for that reason. End quote. But the two men said to hell with it and drove out to Diamonddale the next day. They also brought along Deputy Frank Storrs and Reverend H. H. Van Auken. Back to quoting the article. As they entered the driveway, the farmer, Edgar, ran excitedly from the barn to meet them. This time, he made no effort to conceal his displeasure at their errand. I told you before, Sheriff, he said bluntly, that I'm having trouble enough of my own without your interference. My mother is in no condition to see anyone, and I'm not going to have her disturbed. End quote. Because of Edgar Lonsbury's mantrum, the prosecutor acted without delay. He had to do something because Mima's life might be in danger. Now, it seems like somewhat of a leap to me, but Justice John C. Nichols had already been contacted and had issued a warrant for Lonsbury's arrest before the sheriff and the prosecutor went out to the Rock House farm. So, William Edgar Lonsbury was arrested. Under what charges? For the disappearance of Sarah Lonsbury. Do you feel like that was a huge leap? <laughs> I mean, where was their hard evidence at this point? But see, they knew they didn't have the evidence they needed. They were putting all of their faith in Me Ma's sanity. McPeak and Storrs took Edgar to the Eaton County Jail in Charlotte, Michigan. Edgar was thoroughly questioned for hours, and not surprising, he was resistant. Quoting the article, He withstood hours of intensive questioning and held a sullen defiance that baffled the already uneasy interrogators. 
He calmly parried every question. Is that right? Parried? Parried? I had to look it up. He calmly parried, parried every question with evasive shrugs and the declaration that gone all over this thing so many times that there is nothing I haven't told you. If you thought I had anything to do with it, why haven't you rounded some proof long before now? End quote. But what was going on with Meemaw at the same time? Poor Meemaw. Sheriff Donovan, along with the Reverend H. H. Van Auken, a minister from Diamondale, interviewed Mary Lansbury. Well, they tried to interview Mary Lansbury, but they couldn't find her. She wasn't in the house. They searched every room and found no trace of her. She wasn't outside either. It seemed as though she had disappeared. What the actual crap is going on here? And the shitty housekeeper denied knowing where Mima was as well, even after being plied with questions. Back to the article. Acting on a hunch, Donovan tried the door of a small shed adjoining the back of the house. Damn, I love this guy. He found it securely held by two padlocks. <laughs> Why this unusual precaution, he wondered, with a shed that apparently was little used? As they pondered the question, the minister raised a cautious finger. Did you hear that? He whispered. A moan. In there. Donovan shook the door again and then listened. An unmistakable, low cry, feeble, but undoubtedly from a human throat, came to the ears of the two. End quote. The two men broke down the door of the shed and, returning to the article, quote, There, in the semi-darkness, slumped in a corner of the tiny hovel, was the pitiful figure of a woman, the captive mother. End quote. It was Mima, of course, and the two men had rescued her. She was taken to a nearby doctor's office for an examination. The poor woman was covered in severe bruises and malnourished. She was given food and water and one more thing. Quote, the assurance that her son was already in custody. End quote. Despite some sort of speech impediment, we'll get to that in a sec, Mima began spilling some really hot tea. Uh, but that's actually another word for gossip. And it wasn't gossip. It was 100% true. This was her story as told by James B. Vick's article. Quote, My own son, she mumbled with difficulty through her swollen lips, did this to me. He was angry when I walked away from the house and talked with a neighbor. I pleaded with him when he hurt me so. Then he put me in the shed because he was afraid somebody would look for me in the house. He warned me what he would do if I made any sound. End quote. Before I forget to mention why she was having trouble talking. Oh, this part's gross. Maybe fast forward 15 seconds, if you can't handle it. Edgar had tried to cut her tongue out of her mouth so she couldn't talk anymore. Yeah. That was according to a newspaper article. So, what else had Edgar done exactly? What was he trying to hide? Why, oh why, would he keep his poor mother locked up in such a way and treat her so brutally? 
Sheriff Donovan and Reverend Van Auken coaxed Mima on. They needed more. They needed to know what her son had done. The article continued, quote, With a sorrowful sigh, she, Mary Lonsbury Mima, confirmed what the sheriff had already learned concerning the quarrels that had developed between Lonsbury and his wife over control of the latter's property. End quote. In a different Lansing State Journal article, Meemaw said that Edgar had told Sarah the morning of January 1st, 1905, that if she didn't sign the deed over to him, he would kill her. She had until that evening. Then, Edgar left for a while. He returned around 11 a.m. and saw his wife Sarah getting ready to leave the home. She wanted to go to her uncle's for advice. Side note, I think she was going to see her mother's sister, Auntie Sarah, and her husband, William Warboy Sr., who were still alive and living in Watertown, which is northwest Lansing. You know, where like I-96 and I-69 split by the Loves and the Flying J stations. And I know it doesn't matter, but my brain needs to know these things. <sighs> it's hard being me. Back to the story. Mima continued, quote, She, Sarah, had arranged a joint deed to 40 acres, but refused to do so with the big farm and the building. Then, on this night, it was actually 11 a.m., in 1905, he became terribly angry and threatened her several times. She refused and told him she would leave and have him dispossessed. This means to deprive someone of property or possessions. He choked her and then hit her on the head with the sugar bowl. I tried to interfere and protect her, but he was in such a rage that he told me he would do the same thing to me if I didn't get upstairs and go to bed. That was the last thing I saw of her. She was lying on the floor, not moving or making a sound. The next morning, William, Edgar, looked awfully wild and tired. He told me if anybody asked about her, to say she had gone to Canada. End quote. In a different article, Mima stated, and this is a bit gross, listeners. I'm giving you like a second to maybe just hit that forward button or, you know, like rip your headphones off. Okay. It's not that bad, but. All right. So Mima also stated that Edgar had choked Sarah so hard that her eyes bulged out of her head. Ew. So there it was. It wasn't a confession from Edgar but his own mother had finally shaken her fear and was free enough to confess what she had witnessed. But still, there was a serious problem. Where was the evidence? Even though it was determined that Mima was sane after a three-day observation, Sheriff Donovan needed proof to keep his suspect in jail. Poor Mima couldn't tell them where Sarah's body was, though. She didn't see what Edgar had done with it. Did he burn it? Bury it? What? Sheriff Donovan was running out of time, and Edgar was sitting silently in his jail cell, refusing to talk. A really smart move coming up from good old Sheriff Donovan. He remembered the winter of 1905. It had been really cold. If Edgar had buried Sarah on the farm, he would have had to drop her in a well or dig the ground inside some type of building like an outhouse, basement of the house, or a barn. But all of these searches turned up nothing, until they decided to check the sheep shed, which was also the shed that Edgar kept mother, 
Meemaw, in. It was noon on July 19, 1911. A quote from the Detroit Evening Times read, A morbid crowd of sightseers has followed Deputy Sheriff Frank Storrs, and as each new shovel of earth was turned, interested eyes watched closely. End quote. Can you imagine being allowed to be allowed to be there? Uh, Deputy Storrs struck the ground with a spade just in front of the row of stalls where the stock was kept. He had to break through some lime that had been poured under the top layer of earth. And then, a fragment of cloth was discovered. The man's spade brought up a piece of clothing, and then, a belt buckle. Now, some hair. All of these belonging to Sarah Wing Lansbury. Son of a gun. Edgar had buried his wife in the sheep shed. Quote, Rings on the fingers and other characteristics of the remains left not the slightest doubt that the mystery of six years had at last been brought to light. End quote. And she had only been buried two feet deep without any kind of coffin or box. Just the cold, hard ground. It was July 22nd, 1911, and Edgar was ready to confess, but he didn't confess to very much. From an article in the Escanaba Morning Press, quote, Lonsbury, in his confession, states that he hit his wife several times and that when she fell, her head struck the floor with force enough to kill her. End quote. It was reported that Edgar seemed relieved after his confession, and then these words of his were printed in several newspapers. Quote, I am undone. I am ruined and my own mother is the cause of it all. End quote. He also gave, sorry, my talking through clenched teeth. Start over. He also gave an exclusive to the Lansing State Journal where he said, quote, that his wife never passed an opportunity to refer to the fact that the farm was hers at first and she gave him a joint deed to it and that her father paid for it when in reality the man himself had more than paid for his portion of hard work. This, quote, nagging, so preyed on his mind that in a fit of anger one day, he killed her. End quote. And then he said, I would have gotten away with it too, if it weren't for that pesky mother of mine who carried me for nine months and gave birth to me under 1800s medical conditions and that dumb, dumb Sheriff Donovan. That was not a direct quote. But this was, quote, I would have put up a better fight if they hadn't found the body. Of course, I didn't expect they would, but when the sheriff showed me the rings, I realized that it was all up with me and was anxious to confess and end the worry. He continued, I killed her in a fit of anger and tried to cover up the crime. I have wished a thousand times that I had given myself up on the spot. No one will ever know the punishment I have suffered in the last six years. It is remarkable I am as well as I am physically considering the mental strain I have endured. All right, y'all. I'm about to go off. Are you ready? Look, Edgar, I don't give a chicken fried how you feel. I mean, did you all hear that? He said he wished he'd have given himself up earlier, not that he wished he hadn't killed his wife. 
She could have moved to Nebraska and hung out with her firstborn son, you murderous asshole. Yeah, in the words of a friend of mine, it sucks to suck, Edgar, and you just really suck. Okay. Back to the story. There was an article in the July 13th paper about 35-year-old Herman Lansbury, one of Lansbury's children. He took care of the farm and did chores after Edgar, his father, was arrested. Herman lived on the farm just south of his father's. If you are traveling on I-96 West just before Kreitz Road Bridge, you're rolling right over his old farm. Herman discussed the case freely, giving many insights. He told the reporter that he assisted frequently in the work on the farm of his father and mother, but seldom went inside the house and knew little of his parents' home life from direct observation for the few years prior to 1905. Herman said, quote, well, this is all a quote, I did know that they didn't get along well together, and that is one reason I took care not to go into the house much. I didn't want to get mixed in one of their quarrels. I see that my grandmother is quoted as saying that my father choked my mother. Now, I never saw anything like that. At some of the few times I was at the house before my mother disappeared, I witnessed their quarrels, but I never saw father choke mother. She had a high temper and used to fly at him when she became angry. I have seen him hold her so that she could not strike him, and on one occasion, he threw her to the floor and pinned her arms, where she became like a she-tiger with rage but I believe I never have seen him do anything but protect himself. End quote. Oh, boy. I just remembered the episode with Jen Carpenter and Danny Fairman on So Dead, Violent Ends. They were laughing pretty hysterically, as was I about the she-tiger name. Yeah, that, that needs to be a t-shirt. So this son of a she-tiger had even more to say, like how the troubles between his parents began when Mima moved there from Canada and that Mima was a bit of a troublemaker. He also claimed, like his father, that Mima was insane in the membrane. A quote from Herman, quote, She has acted queerly at times, and this is one reason we don't put much stock in what she says. When the stone house was built, we all tried to get her to live in it. My father said he would fix up a room for her wherever she wished, and that he would put a stove in the room upstairs. But she never would go inside it, not even for her meals. And then she went to the neighbors and told them she was not getting enough to eat, when she could have had anything she wanted within reason. End quote. Man. <laughs> wow, Edgar, he was such a good son. But did anyone, like, stop to think that perhaps Mima didn't want to go into the house because she had seen her daughter-in-law choke to death inside of it? Something else I have to mention, which was discussed in only one newspaper article, was that there were actually two possible witnesses to the disappearance of Sarah Lonsbury. We had put a pin in this earlier, so we are unpinning it now. Their names were Mr. and Mrs. W.D. Gardner, and after so much searching on Ancestry.com, I gave up and switched to find a grave, put in my limited information, and bam, I found William Dufay Gardner, born in 1856. Also, something kind of cool, when I was searching for this gardener couple on Ancestry, I kept finding my very own kin, my great-great-grands, the gardeners from Shiawassee County and Lansing, including little royal gardener who would grow up to be my great-grandpa. 
back to William Dufay Gardner and his wife, who actually did have a name. She wasn't born Mrs. Gardner. Her name was Elma Irene. The Gardners lived right next door to the Lonsberries for years. Their property was just to the north, and the house sat way back from the main road. It's actually almost right next to the railroad tracks, slicing through everyone's property. I mean, there aren't tracks there anymore, but you can see all of this on that 1885 plat map. Anyhow, in the Lansing State Journal, Thursday evening edition, July 13, 1911, a reporter interviewed former Eaton County Deputy Sheriff Frank Skinner. What he said is just bonkers and pretty unsubstantiated. Quote, Mr. Gardner wasn't much of a man to talk, but I heard him say, I think I could locate that woman in about three hours, but perhaps it's better for me not to mix in the affair. End quote. The article also said that Mr. Gardner was called to the house once to separate husband and wife in one of their quarrels, and he was familiar with many of the conditions then existing at the Lonsbury home. So why couldn't these two witnesses, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, be interviewed? Oh, because they were dead, both of them, and their deaths were under, air quotes, mysterious circumstances. Back to Mr. Skinner. Quote, two of the most important witnesses the prosecution cannot be procured now are Mr. and Mrs. W.D. Gardner, whose bodies lie up there in the cemetery, they having drowned in the Grand River through the capsizing of their launch while they were on their way from Lansing to their home, which adjoins the Lonsbury Farm. End quote. Well, shit. <laughs> Mr. Skinner calling the capsizing of their boat suspicious, but I found some interesting info. Now, on Find a Grave, I found that William and Alma died on September 10th, 1908, at the age of 51, and maybe like 40-something, and the cause of death was accident by drowning. No inquest was necessary. The informant was Mrs. Will M. Skinner of Diamonddale. Weird, right? Because Frank Skinner's giving this interview, but Mrs. Will M. Skinner of Diamonddale was the informant? Sarah Lansbury disappeared in 1905, but these people didn't die until 1908. Was the former Deputy Skinner implying that Edgar capsized the couple's boat? Why would Edgar Lonsbury wait that long to kill them by capsizing their boat? I mean, maybe Mr. Gardner was just talking too much, which makes sense, but I do find it interesting that the informant was a woman named Mrs. Will M. Skinner. This means she's the one who found them, right? Or knew them enough to inform everyone of their death. And is she related to Frank Skinner, the former deputy sheriff who told the story of the Gardner's? She had to have been, but blessed be, I just could not go down any more rabbit holes. Oh, psych, I totally did. So Mrs. Will M. Skinner had a birth name, believe it or not. It was Frances Gardner. She was the daughter of the deceased drowned couple, William and Alma Gardner. Her brother-in-law must have been Frank Skinner, who was trying to spill some shitty tea about there being foul play. But here's the thing and I'm sorry to burst anyone's true crime bubble. I found an article in the LSJ about the drowning. The couple didn't drown, like in the little creek behind their home, which would have made sense if 
you know, Edgar was going to go out there and kill them. And even Skinner said they drowned in the Grand River. But yeah, they were in the Grand River across from Moore's Park, probably where Winkin, Blinken, and Nod are now located. Those are the 615-foot board of water and light smokestacks that define the Lansing skyline and are named after a famous poem by Eugene Field, according to Wikipedia. These stacks are visible from 15 miles away, but they hadn't been built yet the day Mr. and Mrs. Gardner lost their lives. According to the article, Arthur Williams, who was a neighbor, was taking them and Miss Vera Knapp, a schoolteacher, back to their homes. They had been visiting Frank Jeffries and his wife, Belle, who happened to be the gardener's other daughter. They were in front of the Jeffries place when the boat ran onto a sunken stump, which caused all people in the boat to be thrown from it. When the accident occurred, Gardner called to his daughter, Mrs. Belle Jeffries, who was standing on the shore watching them depart. Mrs. Jeffries and her husband made a heroic but vain effort to save her father and mother. She did succeed in rescuing Miss Knapp and Mrs. Williams, however. How freaking awful. She literally watched her parents drown. So yeah, Mr. Skinner was spreading some terrible rumors. I mean, there were actual witnesses to the drowning, and Mr. Edgar Lonsbury, though perhaps relieved, was not to blame for their deaths. The gardeners are buried in the Diamonddale Cemetery with possibly a secret to tell. Not if Edgar somehow managed to murder them, because the answer is no. But the bigger mystery here is if they are related to me or not. I actually don't know, but I have a call-in to my uncle. The funeral for Sarah Wing Lonsbury was held on Sunday, July 24th, 1911, and she was buried in Wacousta. Seven of Sarah's children were there, six of them being the offspring of their mother's murderer. You know, their own dad, Edgar. Herman still seemed kind of clueless, and the girls, Mary and Jesse, they were not speaking to their father anymore, according to a newspaper article. Also, why Wacousta and not Diamonddale? Well, because Sarah's babies, little Sarah, little Amy, and little Andrew, were all buried in that Wacousta cemetery. On September 8, 1911, William Edgar Lonsbury received life in the Jackson, Michigan prison. In a Detroit Evening Times, I read that Edgar had aged surprisingly since the discovery of his wife's decayed body in the sheep shed, but guess what? He was looking forward to prison because it would, quote, give him something to do, end quote. Oh, he was bored. Dude, screw you, Edgar. <clears throat> now, let me update you on the rest of Mary Meemaw's life, and I wish I could tell you it got better. It did not. After her confession, which I forgot to tell you that her throat and her tongue were so badly damaged, she had to swallow lotion in order to talk. And I'm kind of feeling like that right now. <laughs> I need a lozenge. This was a long one. All right. I say that every time. Every time. Okay. After her confession, Mima lived in terror that her son would come after her and put her in the sheep shed too, if he were ever released. She literally lived in fear for her life. So Robert Burnett, deputy sheriff who had been with Meemaw during a lot of the questioning, took the poor woman to his own home and had a guard stand watch outside. Oh, 
No one, not even Mima's grandchildren, knew she was staying at that home. However, Mima had been too traumatized over the past six years. She thought Officer Burnett and his wife were trying to poison her. She was taken to the home of Mrs. Alice M. Howley of Potterville, and Mima thought Alice was trying to poison her. Then she was released into the care of Herman and Clarence, her grandsons. But that wasn't going well either. She had to go to the asylum. An article ran in the Lansing State Journal on Friday, March 29, 1912, stating that Mima was on her deathbed. Due to her constant worrying over the crimes of her son, and probably suffering from PTSD, she had been declared insane in a probate court and was supposed to be taken to the state hospital in Kalamazoo. In a Lansing State Journal article, it was claimed that four of the Lansbury children had given up their rights to the Lansbury estate in order to take care of Mima's needs. The children who gave up their rights were William Warboys, who wasn't even related to Mima, the two daughters in Kansas City, Mary Kennedy and Jessie, and Lloyd Lansbury, living out west, but really out west was only about 45 minutes away, by car. It was Wacusta. Before Mima could make that move to Kalamazoo, however, she suffered a stroke. She died on May 4, 1912, so a year after she was released from the prison in her son's home. According to an article in the Lansing State Journal, quote, alleged unusual circumstances connected with the death of the old lady caused Sheriff Donovan to make an investigation yesterday. Dr. Moyer of this city, Lansing, and Dr. Jones of Potterville accompanied the sheriff to the home for the purpose of performing an autopsy, but the undertaker had embalmed the body, thus preventing the post-mortem examination, and no further action will be taken. And quote. Remember, she had been in the care of her grandchildren at the time of her death. The grandchildren who believed their dad. Well, guess what? The Lonsbury children had had quite enough. They contacted someone and issued the following statement in the newspaper. Relative to Mrs. Lonsbury, Editor, State Journal. We do not like to put our family history before the public but there has been so many false statements made we feel as though the truth better be told. The statement Mrs. Mary Lonsbury was a pioneer of this county is false. Okay, I don't remember that. Them saying that. We, we knew she was from England. We knew she was from New York. Okay. She lived with her son in Canada until eight years ago. Oh, we're talking about Mima. Okay, let's back up. The statement Mrs. Mary Lonsbury was a pioneer of this county is false. She lived with her son in Canada until eight years ago. Then her son wrote to his brother, William Lonsbury, that's Edgar, and told him he would have to come and get his mother for he would not take care of her any longer. Mr. Lonsbury went to Canada and brought her home with him. The small addition she lived in was the house Mr. Lonsbury's family was born and brought up in. She was never kept a prisoner for one day. The two outside doors could not be locked from the outside. She was at perfect liberty to go and come as she pleased. The new house was always left open so she could go in whenever she pleased. Neighbors were allowed to visit her if they chose. Mr. Lonsbury had gone away a great many times and left her alone, sometimes three or four days at a time. 
but she always had plenty to eat and plenty of fuel to keep her warm. The statement the four children waived their right to the estate is false. William Warboys is not a son by a former marriage. Mrs. Lansbury was never married but once. The two sons, Herman and Clarence, purchase the interest of the other heirs, and they hold their signed releases. Herman and Clarence bound themselves to care for their grandmother as long as she lived, which wasn't very long. They hired a trained nurse to care for her until she became unmanageable. Then Sheriff Donovan was notified and the proceedings were begun to have her placed in the state hospital at Kalamazoo. Later, however, she became seriously ill and her condition is such that her recovery is not probable. As a result, the proceeding to have her placed in an asylum have been stopped. If people would only search their own hearts and their own private lives, they would not be so willing to condemn others. The Lonsberry family. So, what do y'all think of that? Mm, my thoughts. There's probably some truth in there. But I still think that the first William of Sarah's sons, William Warboys, I still believe that to be her son. She 1,000% was married twice. And let's not forget, um, Mima had bruises and was malnourished. And she was terrified. Terrified because her son had tried to do terrible things to her. Also, sorry, Lonsberries. I totally just put all of your family history out there. And maybe that's what creeps me out the most. That maybe I'm going to be haunted or something. Anyhow, the story of the house, the murder, and the prisoner spread throughout the land. From a Lansing State Journal reporter, quote, Out at the farm where the tragedy occurred, there is a stream of curious visitors all day long. Many of these seek gruesome relics of the murder, while others simply wander about, peering into the windows of the deserted house, and standing for a moment beside the hole in the sheep shed in which the body was found. One comment on the location Lansbury chose for hiding the body all visitors make, and that is that every time he fed his stock, once, twice, or three times a day, he walked over the unmarked grave with the face of his murdered wife less than two feet below his heels. End quote. In 1921, at the age of 71, William Edgar Lansbury asked to be released from the state penitentiary in Jackson, Michigan. Edgar had a perfect prison record, and apparently Judge Clement Smith of Eaton County Circuit Court felt friendly toward the old man. What the F? Well, Judge Smith believed that Edgar would have surrendered himself to the officers on the day of the killing. Not the day he was caught, no sir, but the day of the killing, yes. The judge thought the killing of Sarah Lansbury was accidental and should have been manslaughter, which was only a 10-year sentence. Okay, do y'all remember how this guy would constantly threaten his wife, not with divorce, but with death? If she didn't put him on the damn deed to the land? It was premeditated. He had even told her that morning to get ready for it. He went out, came back about 11 a.m., Sarah was putting on her hat to go get advice from someone, so he killed her. And then he left her body on the floor until midnight, and still, he didn't do the right thing. He buried her in the sheep shed and had to walk over her body two to three times a day as he took care of the sheep. This GD guy. <clears throat> okay. 
I can't figure out if Edgar was released, but he was sent straight to hell in 1925 when he died at the age of 75 years old. That was the end of William Edgar Lansbury. And you want to know where they buried the suffer? Oh, you're going to hate this. The children had him buried right next to the woman he killed. So for eternity, whatever was left of her and him are laying next to each other in the ground. Girl, if I had the money, I'd dig his ass up and move it somewhere else. Be gone. Be gone. Get away from her. But the story isn't quite over, because I need to tell you about the Lansbury children. Let's start with the eldest, Mary Lansbury Kennedy. Mary got married kind of young. I don't, I'm too tired to look up the age. (laughs) But she got married in 1894 to 51-year-old Albert Kennedy. Albert had been married to a Mary once before and had two children with his first wife. They divorced prior to 1894, and then the first Mary died in the flu epidemic in 1918. Weirdly, I found Albert in someone else's family tree on Ancestry.com, and the family tree was titled Michigan Fathered, the Unknown Child of the 70s. But I don't know what his role was in that family tree. The tree was created by a genealogist trying to find the birth parents of adoptees, but intriguing, right? Also, there are over 15,000 people in that tree. Albert is just one of them. Anyhow, Mary is the daughter who lived in Kansas City, Missouri with Albert, their two sons, and Mary's younger sister, Jessie. Jessie would have been 17 at the time of her mother's death. The 1910 census stated that the following people were in the Kennedy home. Albert is 68, Mary is 60, Albert Jr. 10, Harold 8, and Jessie is 22. Jesse was now working as a stenographer. But two years later in 1912, which was also the year after their mother's body was discovered and the same year Mima died, Mary Lansbury Kennedy passed away. I could not find her death certificate, so I don't know how she died or the exact date. What I do know is that her grieving husband, whom she had been married to for 18 years, found love again and was married October 2nd, 1913, so about a year after his wife's death. And his new wife's name was Jessie Lansbury. Yep, Albert, aged 70, married his 26-year-old sister-in-law, the one who had lived in his house since she was at least 13 years of age. By the time the 1920 census rolled around, Albert, 76, Jesse, 32, Albert Jr., 20, and Harold, 18, were all living together in Kansas City, Missouri. Albert died in 1926 at the age of 82. Jesse lived to the age of 89 and died in California. In her obituary, Jesse is listed as leaving behind a stepson, Albert, who is also her nephew, two grandchildren, and five great-grands. She was only ever married to Albert. She is also buried in that Forest Hill Cemetery in Kansas City, Missouri, the same cemetery as her older sister Mary and her brother-in-law slash husband, Albert. I do not know how they decided to line up the grave plots, though. The word friend is engraved on Jesse's headstone. 
Carlisle Leslie Lansbury, the second-born child of Sarah and Edgar Lansbury, unalived himself in 1928. He had lived in Lansing and also Royal Oak, which is a suburb of Detroit. Leslie had worked as a Detroit Railways motorman, and that is a person who operates a tram, like a streetcar, light rail, or rapid transit train. He had been twice married, twice divorced. On July 14, 1928, Leslie took a few days vacation to visit his brother Lloyd on Lloyd's farm in Grand Ledge. Remember Lloyd was the only Lonsbury child who thought their father had actually killed their mother when she disappeared? Lloyd found his older brother with a shotgun next to his body. That's sort of messed up, right? That Leslie would write to Lloyd stating he wanted to come visit him and then traumatizes his brother forever by shooting himself on the property. And maybe he did it there because he had no one else. He wanted to be found, wanted to be buried in the cemetery there. I don't know. I'm always trying to think of maybe a good reason why people do something terrible. (laughs) I don't mean murder, okay? Well, maybe sometimes. Lloyd held his big brother's funeral at Lloyd's home. Carlisle Leslie Lonsbury is buried near his parents in the Wacousta Cemetery. He was 54 years old. Herman, the son who lived right next door to his parents and referred to his mother as a she-tiger, committed suicide at the age of 65 years old by carbon monoxide poisoning in 1940. He had lived the rest of his life on the farm of his parents. I mean, the one his mother once owned. He was not buried in the Wacousta Cemetery, but in the Delta Center Cemetery in Grand Ledge. His wife was buried next to him nine years later. Do you think he could have been troubled about his mother? His father? How things went down with Mima when she was in Herman's care? Maybe. Then there was Clarence Lansbury, who had a pending larceny charge in Ingham County for stealing, quote, a quantity of brass from the Grand Trunk Railway by whom he was employed in Lansing. He stole 8,000 pounds of brass over the course of a year. I think this happened around 1912 when he was caught. He confessed to the crime, was arrested, and said he just needed the money as his wages were too small. He must not have been put away long because he married and had several children. Clarence ended up back on the family farm, possibly living in the pretentious Rock House. He died in 1957 and is not buried in Wacousta, but in the Diamonddale Cemetery. Last is Lloyd, the only Lansbury that truly thought his father had killed his mother. He was married twice, had several children, and had his brother take himself out on his farm. He died in 1957 at the age of 72. And so... I wrap up this story with the following thoughts from a wordy reporter who romanticized this entire case, thinking it was going to be the biggest story of all time. Quote, The house will become a landmark to which everyone will point when traveling that road. Built of cement and hard headstones, it promises to stand for half a century unless someone determines to destroy it. Back of it is the shack in which the tragedy occurred, and not over 50 feet away is the sheep shed where Lansbury carried the body of his wife at nightfall for interment. Internment? Yeah, that one. Two trumpet vines grow in the front yard, trees have been set out there to adorn the place, and in all its appointments, the farm has the appearance of being the home of a comfortable, home-enjoying family. 
The quote continues. In years to come, the Lonsbury murder will become an Eaton legend, but no one who recalls that tragedy will fail to recall as well the pathetic old mother who lived for six years shut off from kindnesses and communication with friendly people, with the burden of her son's awful deed on her mind, and finding him growing in bitter harshness toward her day by day. End quote. But people did forget. For whatever the reason, the story faded from time. I listened to a podcast called Buried Bylines, done by two former news reporters. One of them, Mallory, is a former student of my husband's, and a local Holt girl. The two women look at a case that didn't get the headlines it deserved and then try to figure out what else was going on at the time or the reason why the story just didn't blow up nationally. Well, I think the story did blow up for a while, but it wasn't a massacre. Those seemed to hang on a lot longer and it wasn't a statewide or national tragedy because those are remembered and passed down. We are a few generations away from this crazy story, so the people who were involved died, passed that story on, but then those people are gone now too. I also think that because the road the house is located on was cut off by the freeway, it made it harder for people to pass by and say, oh hey, remember that guy who killed his wife and buried her in the sheep shed? Instead, the road is now a dead end with no trespassing signs. And please, whatever you do, don't be like those gawkers who followed the deputy around watching him dig up pieces of the farm trying to find a dead body. Don't be like those people who snooped around trying to recover a relic. Don't be like me, who has driven by the house with my eyes wide and my mouth hanging open. Because while the house did indeed withstand the hands of time and looks exactly the same as it did back then, someone lives there, yo. Have some respect. Sheesh. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, this story just fascinates me because of the locality, because of the morbidity, and because of the history. I also really feel for Sarah Lansbury, who may have weirdly and wrongly held something over her husband's head, but shouldn't have been murdered because of it. So that's it. That's today's story, and I don't really have an oops, I'm stupid again tale for you today, but I did want to relay a slight disagreement my husband and I had, and actually, it's not the disagreement that's kind of stupid. Well, maybe. It's more of his response to the disagreement. I don't know what we were doing. Maybe we couldn't agree how to say the word milk or pillow. Or perhaps there were crumbs on his side of the bed. I blame the children. I just recall him looking me in the eye and saying the words to the sheep shed woman. So if I ever come up missing, you'll know where to look. Thank you for joining me today. My sources today were the Violent Ends podcast, Ancestry.com, Old Newspapers, and Find a Grave. For a complete list of sources, please visit my Where They Stood Facebook page. I also want to thank my two sponsors, Julie Wheaton Myers and CGB, whose support puts them at co-producer status. I'll see you all next week, I hope, with another spooky story from Where They Stood. <laughs>